<laughs> what? Um, okay. So we started last week, and, you know, uh, I know for me sometimes Christmas, um, where are we at here? We talked about Buddy the Elf. We were talking about Scrooge McDuck. Um, you know, kind of where you at on that Christmas scale. And I think really, honestly, what we're, we're our, our goal in all of this, and I'm sorry for this cheesy, um, you know, this cheesy little nativity. But, I mean, really, the, the kind of point is wherever you are on that scale, right? Like, you could be on the Scrooge side. You could be on the Buddy side. Like, honestly, the kind of point for all of us, especially as we gather here, is just to turn our eyes towards the manger, towards the hope that we find in this baby that was delivered, again, in this remote corner of the empire 2,000 years ago. Um, and that's, again, we're kind of like trying to get off of that, that kind of binary line that, and, and, and turn our eyes, again, up towards the hope that's found in Jesus. I want to talk this morning about a, a song, the, the second song in the New Testament here. It's called the Benedictus. Uh-oh, uh-oh. He's in big trouble. Which one is it? Which one is it, Chris? Which one do you think? For sure, Brooks. I want to talk about this second song. It's called The Benedictus. It's by a guy named Zachariah. Um, Zachariah was a priest in, in the time that Jesus was born. Uh, he was married to a woman named Elizabeth. Elizabeth and Zachariah have a son named John the Baptist. Okay? And so there is this beautiful song, this prophecy, right? It says that, that Zechariah prophesies. He kind of sings this song, this poem. But to understand where this song arises out of, you kind of got to go all the way, all the way, all the way, all the way back to Genesis. And you start in Genesis 12, right? So in Genesis 12 is this original call that God speaks to Abraham. This is even before God changes his name to Abraham. It's still Abram. And perhaps you've heard of this call, the Lord, God, the Lord says to Abram, right? He gives him this original call, go from your, um, your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. These great words, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make, I will bless you. I will make you great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you. I will curse all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you, right? So it's this great promise. It really kind of initiates the tribes of Israel. It really kind of initiates um, the call of God, the working of God in this. It's always important to remember that when God wants to change the world, he initially starts with, um, with the elderly, right? Abraham and Sarah, well on in years, right? He starts with the elderly. It's as if God goes over to Brookdale and says, okay, we're going to do something new here. Who's up for it, right? And he picks two people out of Brookdale and says, you guys are going to start the movement that's going to change the world. That's Abraham and Sarah, right? So this great call, and perhaps you're familiar with this great call, but this other part of the, the kind of calling, the word that God speaks to Abraham goes this way, which you probably might not be as familiar with, but the Lord says to him, Right, The Lord says to Abram, he says, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. Anybody know what God's talking about here or what God's kind of speaking towards? I guess Egypt. You got it. Good guess. Everybody else was just being humble. They all know the answer. They just being humble. God's talking about Egypt, right? He's saying that your descendants, right, you're, you're, those who kind of come after you 
are going to be strangers in a country that's not their own. They're going to be enslaved and mistreated there. So the, the kind of biblical story, remember Genesis starts with obviously Adam and Eve. You get to Noah, you get to Abram, Abraham, you get to his sons. It kind of ends with Joseph. Joseph is the prince of Egypt. And then after Genesis, the next book of the Bible is Exodus, right? It's all about the kind of Exodus, the liberation from Egypt. It's that, that kind of period of after they had been enslaved for 400 years, it's Moses coming up and liberating people, the Exodus out of, out of, um, out of, out of Egypt. I would say one of the things that I, I really want you to kind of put into your mind here is this number 400, right? They are going to be strangers for 400 years. And we learn about this. This is the number that they are actually strangers um, enslaved in, uh, in, they were in slavery for 400 years. As a matter of fact, uh, if you go to Exodus, right, as, as kind of Moses is recounting this narrative, he says the, the length of time the Israelites were enslaved was 430 years, right? That's how long they were enslaved. At the end of those 430 years, um, to that very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Uh, you know, before we kind of move on, let's put this number in context a little bit, this 430 years. Because sometimes you read old history and it's like, oh, 430 years. Um, the, the way to really kind of put it in context or, or give some perspective, if you were to think about slavery in the United States, right, our horrible history with slavery in the United States, most people agree it kind of begins in 1620 with the first slave in Jamestown, right? Uh, there's about 19 slaves aboard a Dutch trade ship and they're sold. And then that that is abolished in in 1865, so about 245 years, right? Now, if you were to think about 1620, and then you were to apply that 400 number, right? That literally almost brings us to present day, to where we are present day, right? And if you were to kind of go that 430, the full 430, imagine to this present day, still living in a society that is enslaves large groups of people, right? So when you think about the perspective of how long the Israelites were in slavery, that gives us a little perspective of the, the, the decades, the centuries, the generations of slavery that the Egyptian or that the Israelites had been in 400 years, right? Um, we go through the kind of, um, you go through kind of the, the, the main narrative of the Old Testament um, the Exodus, the judges, the kings, the rise of the kings um, with King David and then King Solomon. Most people think that the kingdom peaks right around the year 700 BC. So about 700 years before Christ is born, the kingdom kind of peaks. Um, and then at that same time, you kind of have, um, you, you have the, the prophets that are kind of speaking to this but after about 700 BC, right, as the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, right, it begins with some of the last words that are spoken to the Israelites. Because after kind of Malachi writes these words, right, so the, the kingdom peaks in about 700, uh, David, Solomon, the kingdom divides, it splits, it deteriorates, there's fighting, there's factions. About the year 400, right, that's, that's this 400-year period of silence. It's called the intertestamental period, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, this period of silence. Some of the last words that God speaks to his people in the book of Malachi, I have always loved you, says the Lord. 
right? I have always loved you. There's this 400-year period of silence. And then after that 400-year period of silence is when we begin in the book of Luke, right? When we begin in the book of Luke. So the, the book of Luke starts like this. Luke says, hey, here's why I'm writing this book, verses 1 through 4, right? I'm writing this book for my friend Theophilus. I've studied this. I've given a careful account. Luke 1, 5 through 25, an angel kind of speaks of John the Baptist's birth. So he, he goes to Zechariah and he says, hey, Zechariah, you and, and Elizabeth are going to have a son, right? I, you're going to have this son, this guy named John, right? He's, he's going to be your son. And, and Zechariah says to the angel, he says, no, 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 you don't understand. Like we live in Brookdale, right? My wife and I live our Brookdale residents, and they are. They're well along in age. Again, this is like Abraham and Sarah part two, where they're well along in age. And the, the, the angel says, you are going to have a, a child. And, and uh, Zachariah says, no, we, we, we're like, what? And then this is that moment where the angel says, oh, since you don't want to believe me, you will be silent until your son is born, right? Do you guys remember this part of the story? So the, the angel says, you'll be silent until your son is born. So there's kind of like this, like all this, there's this, this narrative of 400, you have the 400 years of exit, or of slavery, you have the 400 years of silence, you have this additional kind of silence, but we have to begin, when you get into Zechariah actually speaking, prophesying, right, you have to understand, here, I'll put on this, we kind of have to begin with like shock and amazement that God has opened up his mouth again and he's speaking to his people after 400 years, right? The Bible's clear about these numbers. It is always kind of plain with these numbers. 400 years of slavery, 400 years of silence, right? Liberation. God is about to do another sort of liberation here. So you begin with this understanding that after 400 years, God is ready to open up his mouth, to speak, and to lead his people in liberation. Um, let's go to it, the Benedictus. Luke 1, verse 676, which is, uh, <laughs> sorry about that, there's no 600, uh, verse 67. Luke 1, verse 67, and then goes to about verse 80. Okay, just, and again, I know that y'all have those Bibles with, without the context, which drives me crazy. Um, Mary's song, we talked about that last week, verse 46 through 56. Um, and then 57 through 66 is the birth of John the Baptist. This is how John the Baptist is born. Little, little um, bonus note in here. That's why my dad, my middle name is John, after John the Baptist. Um, and then... Again, verse 64, his mouth is open, he, his tongue was loose, he began to speak, praising God. Um, and then his father, verse 67, let's start here, and we'll read this in the round, I'll start it off. John the Baptist's father, his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Remember, to prophesy is not just to talk about the future, like you're a prophet and you can predict the future. 
To prophesy was to have a divine message from God that you are speaking on behalf of God to the people, right? John the Baptist, or Zechariah is given this divine message and he's speaking it on behalf to the people. And he begins by saying, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. Benedictus, right? Praise, blessing, goodness. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people. Because he has visited his people. Some translations will say he has visited. Because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago. of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. See? I grew and became strong in spirit and lived in the wilderness of Pennsylvania until I appeared publicly to Southern California. That's kind of the, the newer translation. But, uh, you know, I, sometimes you read it, and I've, I've read this text, and I, I don't know, just, just kind of verses. And I'm going to talk about 77. And, but, you know, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. Remember, 400 years, right? 400 years of, of darkness, of silence. And, and John, or, or Zechariah, is, is preaching, is prophesying, is speaking that the rising sun is coming from heaven. Um, beautiful, beautiful uh, text here. And again, it kind of begins this, this praise, this benedictus, to just get a little Christmas reference into this, you know, it, it says, you know, verse 67 or 68, praise be to the Lord of God, our Israel, because he has come to his people. Does anybody have visited? Anybody say visited? No? All come? Years have visited? It's kind of that, that word. And, you know, when, when I think about this, I was kind of struck by this. You know, we think about God coming to visit. We think about Jesus coming to visit. Some, sometimes people think of it, I don't know, I, I had this, these two kind of comparisons. Plus, you just got to at least get one. Uncle Eddie Christmas, um, National Lampoon's Christmas. We think about God visiting, right? It's, it's not like this kind of weird uncle who, you know, we kind of generally to- tolerate. We put up with his quirks and, you know, it's okay, he's here and we like it. And, but we kind of keep him at arm's length, right? You know, a couple years, well, not a lot of years ago, uh, Following one of the hurricanes in, in Florida, it was Hurricane Sandy. I remember my dad did this, and I, it was one of the things that always stood out to my dad. Somehow him and, and some other folks in the church organized a, 
a tractor trailer full of supplies, um, water, food, um, all sorts of supplies. And they, I don't know if they drove it, I should have called my dad and got the, the, the full story again, but they drove this tractor trailer, or they got this tractor trailer transported down to this hurricane land and they distributed all this, um, all these supplies, this, this necessary medical equipment, food, clothing, all this sort of people to, to, to the people who are in need. And that's always stood out to me when I think about this passage. Praise be to the God of Israel, right? Because he has come to his people and he has redeemed them. Imagine the sort of um, excitement, um, hope, um, joy you would have if you're sitting there in a, in a hurricane-ravaged area and all of a sudden somebody drives into your neighborhood, right, with supplies, water, food, um, shelters, tents, all those sorts of things. That is the image that we have to carry with us when we think about the God of the universe, not driving down the East Coast from Pennsylvania to Florida, the God of the universe crossing the infinite space of the universe to come and be with his people, to redeem and rescue his people. And then Zechariah says this, he, he uses this word a couple times, which is the word that stands out to me. He uses this word salvation, right? And he uses it three different times. And I thought about the way that he was using this word, salvation, as he's prophesying, as he's speaking on behalf of the Lord. And he talks about this horn of salvation in the house of David, right? This is kind of a political salvation. Remember, think about what the the Israelites were living under at that time. Um, Then he talks about salvation from all who hate us. Salvation from enemies, right? This is in verse uh, 71, right? Salvation from all who hate us, uh, from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. And then he talks about, again, we just kind of read this again, verse 77, um, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. So Zechariah is prophesying, he's speaking on behalf of the Lord. And he says again, salvation, rescue, deliverance is coming. So let's look at the way that these are used in, um, in this passage. He talks about the, this kind of horn of salvation um, in the house of David. And let me start with that second part first before we go to the horn of salvation. Uh, house of David would be just synonymous for the nation of Israel. It was just another way to say the nation of Israel, right? So he's talking about the nation of Israel. Again, remember, the pinnacle of the nation of Israel is about 700 when King David um, comes. He unifies all the tribes, maybe even kind of leading into Solomon's uh the way that Solomon kind of establishes the temple. This is like the pinnacle of the kingdom, right? This is the pinnacle of the nation of Israel. Um, if there was, if there was like a, Hey, we're going to make Israel great again. And they still believe this, this would be the moment. This would be the greatest moment in the history of the nation of Israel, right? This pinnacle. Um, after that you have, um, Babylon comes in and exiles the people. They basically come in and they, grab people and they take them out. You have Assyria, they come in and they take people out. You have oppression by Greece. You have oppression by Rome, specifically Rome. This is kind of the, the time that Jesus grows up in. The, the, the oppression, the slavery, the domination, the persecution by Rome. There's this um, historical fact that happens in this little town about 
you know, again, just to kind of give us an idea of, of what's going on when, when he's talking about political salvation, right? Living under the rule and the reign and the domination and the oppression of Rome. This probably happens, I know I'm, I'm skitting a little bit forward here, but just to give us an idea of what it would be like during, during the time when Jesus is born, when, when um, Zechariah is prophesying this. You have this little town here called Sephoris. I don't know, four or five miles from Nazareth, right? That's Jesus' hometown. Um, so you have this little town here, and there was, there was a Jewish revolt, right? Because the Jews did not enjoy, nor, nor would anybody, living uh, under the domination or the oppression or the persecution of, the, of, the, of Rome. And so there's a Jewish revolt, and there's a Roman general, and this is just, you can go read this in the history books. There's a Roman general named Varus, he comes into this village of Sephoris. He burns it to the ground. He hunts down about, two, about the 2,000 men who have kind of rallied together and said, we're going to stand up to Rome. He hunts them down, these 2,000 men. And he crucifies them, right? 2,000 crosses, 2,000 crucifixes all around this burnt down village of Sephoris, right? The rest of the people, anybody else who he, this general found, all sold into slavery. And again, this is about three miles from where Jesus was kind of, you know, raised, right? This is his hometown from Nazareth, right? The Israelites lived under this incredibly oppressive, um, dominating, persecuting burden of Rome. And they had, not, not only was it Rome, it was Greece before them, it was Babylon before them, it was Assyria before them, Right? And they lived under this cruelty, this suffering. Um, because of all this, I love how N.T. Wright kind of summarizes this. He says that Israel becomes this, this hotbed of, of nationalist revolution. Right? This is the 2,000 guys saying, yeah, we're going to stand up. We're going to fight. We're going to go back. Fighting all the paganism. Fighting these rulers. Suffering would come. Right? And they knew this. Suffering would come of it specifically in the form of Roman swords and falling bricks and mortar, right? They would come in, they would burn, they would level villages, they would um, destroy, and above all, crosses planted outside the city wall. But unlike the revolutionaries, right? Jesus saw as his vocation, Jesus saw as his job, as a pagan corruption, this very desire to fight paganism itself, to fight itself. Jesus determined that his vocation as Israel's representative, this is so counterintuitive to anything that we ever think, was to lose the battle on Israel's behalf. He would thereby do for Israel what she could not do for herself. He would fulfill Israel's vocation that she should be the servant of the people, the light of the world, right? So Zechariah is singing this song, and again, this kind of political salvation that everybody was looking for was to stand up against Rome, to fight, to conquer, to, to, to beat, to defeat. And Jesus, we know, is coming in, right? His, his mission, his vocation will be to lose the battle, will be to allow the worst to happen to him so that he can then begin to turn things in the other direction. Um, the, the second part, though, the house of David, right, this, this nation of Israel. The second part of this um, is, is this, uh, yeah, let me say this, political salvation in those days, right, is all about who has the power, who controls. 
In America, both sides claim that they have the power. This is just kind of bringing it right to our day, right? This is what we live with right now. Both sides claiming that they, giving them the power, right? One side is going to say, we're going to make America great again. And the other side says, if you give us the power, we're going to lead and guide our country forward with progress. We both have the right way. And if you just give us the power, if you give us the power, and then we understand Jesus' vocation, the house of David, the house of Israel that Jesus leads, what does Jesus do with power? We see it again and again and again. He just gives his power away. He gives it to his disciples and says, hey, you guys go do this work, right? You don't see Jesus leading the charge, leading the revolt. The Son of Man does not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And then we get into this horn of salvation, right? What is a horn of salvation? How do we understand the horn of salvation? Uh, I don't know if this joke will work, but maybe we just need a little bit of a mental break. We all know it's the unicorn horn is the horn of salvation that Jesus was talking about. So it didn't work. That's what I thought. That's what <laughs> So there's three ways to understand when, when Zechariah is using this phrase, a horn of salvation, right? Because we're like, what does this even mean, he, this horn of salvation? Okay, one way to think about it is the horn of an animal, right? Think about a ram, think about a steer, think about even a deer or any sort of horned animal. And that, that horn is their point of strength. It's kind of their offensive weapon, so to speak, right? When Jesus... In, when, when Jesus, again, as he, um, in, as he becomes this kind of, this horn of salvation, his strength, I love this about Jesus, we just have to learn this again and again, his strength is found in weakness, right? Mark 10, 45, that's what we just talked about. He's come to be served, but to serve. Another way to understand it is, one of the things that the Israelites would do is they would, again, Imagine a ram's horn. Imagine the horn of, of a cow or a steer. They cut the, the horn off. It's, it's hollow inside. And they would fill it with anointing oil, right? And then they would kind of use that as they would anoint people, right? They would take the horn of, of salvation, the horn of anointing oil, and then they would pour it on people. They would use this as, as a vessel to pour anointing oil on people. And when you think about the anointing that Jesus claimed about himself, right? In, in Luke 4.18, right? As Jesus begins his ministry, he's anointed to preach good news to the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized. The other thing is there was a lady in the church that I grew up in. Her name was Dottie, Dottie, Dottie Reed. And, uh, the sweet, like the sweetest, sweet, the best old church lady like you could ever imagine. I, I'm telling you, if I could just take Dottie Reed and clone her and put her in everything, like she is just that sweet kind of, I mean, she was honestly probably about this tall. I'm not kidding. She was tiny church lady, loved the Lord, just a heart, just joy. And you just, her smile and everything. And there was, has anybody heard of a shofar? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah, a shofar. I mean, I'm telling you, she's like, she's like five, she's maybe five feet, right? And a shofar is a ram's horn. It was blown. It was like one of the things that the Israelites would blow in victory, right? They would get these ram's horn, and they, would, and it's still kind of a thing. I think it's in some Pentecostal circles or some different circles to like, like it's kind of this tie into the victory of Israel. And then you blow it in church, and it's just like this shofar horn that she, and dot and 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 Dottie would just like she would just 
man, she would make this thing sing. And like, I'll never forget, like in church, like all of a sudden you're like praising the Lord and it would be like you getting out. Um, what's the ones that they use in South Africa? Like the, yeah, the, it would be just be like you, it would just be like you just like whipping it out, just like in the middle of Brian, just jamming, just like hitting it. And she would do this, but this this again, this kind of horn, this this horn that that would be blown in victory, this ram's horn. Um, you know, you think about what's Jesus's victory, his life, his death, his resurrection, the victorious moment of human history. In second, you know, again, you can look at Second Corinthians. 214 for that right so jesus the horn of salvation in the house of david right and and just even the way that as zachariah is prophesying this and then you look at the way that jesus fulfills this with weakness preaching to the poor the oppressed and his victory in life and in death and in resurrection um he talks about salvation then the next part from enemies and i was thinking about this relationally and again it's, it's mentioned here twice, right? Salvation from enemies, salvation from those who hate us. And if you think about the Israelites, and we just talked about this, the Israelites had some very tangible, right? Like people who wanted to kill them, wanted to oppress them, um, stole from them, told them, boss them around, right? I think some of us, most of us have watched a lot of The Chosen and you kind of see the way that the Romans were treating them. Um, they had just people right next door who were in charge of them, who were enemies, right? They had some old tribal grudges that might have kind of been still irrelevant, but they still hated them. There were the Samaritans that the Jews hated. They didn't even go into that village, into that town. They would avoid them. They were half-breeds. They were dogs. They were mongrels. The Israelites had people who just didn't fit into their system of religion, Right? They didn't observe the laws, the traditions. They didn't know Yahweh. Those were the Gentiles, right? The Israelites had all these, so to speak, enemies. Now, when we think about our enemies, um, I, I, really, I really like how my friend Jan Johnson, I know I've used this before, Jan Johnson, because we don't, we don't have like these, these kind of probably tangible, physical, villain-esque type enemies, right? Jan Johnson would call an enemy... Anyone whom you just don't like at the moment, right? Anyone whom you just don't like at the moment. And there's, I guarantee you there's people in your life who you think that person is so annoying. I wish that they kind of would just go away, right? Life, work, family, whatever would be so much easier if I just didn't have to deal with <clears throat> that person, right? Um, I don't even want, like, are they going to be at that party? I'm not even going to that party if they're in that party, right? I don't want to be in the same room as that person. Anyone who you just don't like at the moment, I guarantee you there's somebody kind of floating around in your brain right now thinking like, no, oh, yeah, that's okay, right? We have these people around us. We don't have like, say, I, I don't know why I was thinking about this, but you know, we don't have this, this kind of villain-esque, backstabbing, conniving, like, you know, like a Captain Hook to a Peter Pan, right? It doesn't have to be like that. There's just people in our lives who we think life would be better if they weren't around. It would be easier. I'd enjoy myself more. I wouldn't have to worry about. It doesn't have to be, you know, this kind of... Um, but again, then you think about Jesus, right? How then does Jesus bring salvation from our enemies, Right? Because 
from childhood, we're taught that this is the way. To stand up, to fight, to battle, right? To, to, to challenge. I was kind of looking at, you know, different enemies. Like, this is how you're going to defeat the enemies. And really, the salvation that Jesus brings from our enemies, again, whoever that is that's floating around in your brain right now, how does Jesus save you from that person? How does Jesus deliver you from that? I would say this. Um, we fall on our knees before the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And we cry out for God to give us supernatural power to love those whom are the most difficult, annoying, hurtful, cringeworthy, right? And that's true that Jesus gives us that power. The infusion of the Holy Spirit, we are given salvation from our enemies exactly by loving them, right? Instilling in our souls the power of enemy love energized by the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that that sounds crazy, but try it. Try it. That person who's just bouncing around in your head right now, man, that person's so annoying. I wish I didn't have to deal with them. I wish they would go away. Life would be easier. And you really begin. You fall on your knees. You cry out to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Oh, God, give me the power that only you can to love those people. Change my heart. Give me that sort of strength, right? And the Holy Spirit does that. He infuses you. He gives you that salvation from your enemies by loving them. One last salvation, and this is going to be a little bit more of an activity than any sort of a sermon part. Uh, verse 77, uh, he gives his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Obviously, we kind of see the next chapter of, of Zechariah's um, prophecy as Jesus goes on to live and die and the forgiveness of his sins that is offered through the cross. Um, and we see, again, kind of as we read the New Testament, as we encounter our sins, what to do with those th- sins. Um, here's what the Lord impressed on my heart for us to do this morning. I think everybody should have a pad of paper, although I need to maybe hand out some pens. I, I want us to take a few, minute, a few minutes, and I want us to just kind of write down, I know this kind of sounds like a little bit of an old, old kind of preacher style thing. I want you to just list out some of our sins, right? Just between you and the Lord. If you need to get up and kind of move away from some, some people, if there's just some things that you want to, but I want us to write those sins down, and I want us to look at those sins, right? Because... Again, Zechariah is speaking the song about the salvation. And again, sometimes we don't talk a lot about sins or we think about, you know, Jesus is just kind of here to help my life better. But it's also important for us to think about, think about the ways that we've made a mess of it. And we have, and I have, right? And just kind of writing down those sins and to confess them, right? Really, it's just kind of a way of confession. I think that's one of the great things the Catholic Church does is they have that confessional in, in which you have this liberation just to go speak to somebody and say, man, this is what I've done. This is the mistakes I've made. This is where I've fallen short. These are my sins. And at some level, maybe this will help us, maybe not in, in that full realm, um, but, but we just say, Lord, this is, this is how I've sinned against you. This is how I've sinned against others. Um, this is kind of how I've, I've just sinned. And it could be something recent. It could be something that you've struggled with. It could be something 
Um, there's sins of omission where you've, you've kind of left things out. Uh, you've just been apathetic. You've ignored. Um, and then sometimes there's sins where you just intentionally disobey God. There's all sorts of things. I had an idea of just like putting a big list on the, on the PowerPoint, but I'm like, nah, let's just let people kind of have a moment. And I just want you, again, just have a moment with those, you and the Lord, just kind of writing those out. I'm going to do it. Um, this is just a little activity, just kind of a confession activity. Um, and just right now, it could be one, it could be 10, it could be 100, it could be whatever the Lord impresses on your heart. And again, we think about that, that in Jesus, Zechariah speaking, that in Jesus, he's giving us a knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God, right? Because of the tender mercy of our God. So we'll write those out. Um, I, I'm going to end this in a time of meditation. Um, but for meditation, I'm just going to play a song, just kind of a simple, like, four-minute song. And we, I just want us to reflect on our sins, kind of maybe listen to that song. And then at some point, too, I'm going to bring a trash can up here. And you don't just, just throw it away in the trash can. As, as you come to take the Eucharist, knowing that all the sins that you ever will commit, ever have committed, are currently committing, all of the ways that we have made a mess of it have been forgiven in Christ. So, um, let me grab a, Molly, will you grab some, I mean, you're kind of right there, will you just grab some pens and if anybody needs a pen, just stick your hand up and Molly will hand you a pen. I think there should be plenty of notepads. Um, Anybody have any questions on, on this? Did I explain it? Just write them down. I'm going to play a song, and then at some point, I'll bring the trash can up, and you can just kind of come and throw them away. Um, and, and that'll be just, again, symbolic of not only confessing, but just releasing our sins, um, the salvation that's been given us. So.
um, you'll have your list or you'll be working through your list or you'll be thinking about things on your list. And uh, this song is, is kind of kind of been uh, playing a lot in the background of, of my life over the past couple weeks. And I don't know, the, the lyrics have, have spoken to me and I was thinking about confession. I was thinking about the list of sins and I had done this. And I don't know, I just kind of want us to, to kind of contrast our list with some of the things that are, are said and spoken in this song. And then at some point, as Brian then comes to play some, some music afterwards, um, yeah, come up, I'll put a trash can right here, you just throw them away. And, and then take the Eucharist as, again, a, just, just another tethering point, another moment to turn our hearts towards the blood of the new covenant, right? The body that was broken for us, the blood of the new covenant, the forgiveness of our sins, all the things, all the messes, the mistakes that we've made, um, are dead and gone and forgiven in the name of Jesus. Um, so let me say a prayer and then we'll, we'll, we'll just finish this up. Lord, again, thank you. Um, I think about the salvation that was proclaimed by Zechariah. I think about the way that that salvation was delivered in Jesus. the political salvation, again, all the ways that we try and consolidate power, have power, and that, that sometimes is even just personally. Um, we understand that the real power is in giving power away and being a servant. We thank you for the salvation from those, our enemies, those who we just don't like at the moment, through the power of love. We think about the salvation that's offered again through the forgiveness of our sins. Through the power of your death and resurrection. Thank you, Lord. Would you, once again, again, as we come into this room, and there's a lot of things going on, it's a busy time, and there's no better time to tether our hearts back to the forgiving mercy and love of Jesus than right now. So speak to us once more, Lord, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almost done. Almost done. Yeah.